Episode 24, There is no special Bible for lazy people. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, it's great to be back. I've had a few weeks away working on other projects, and uh, it's been a very busy time. It's my slow season at uh, work and my weather-related paintless dent repair career. However, uh, I've been very busy with We Montana, with my uh, nonprofit, where we have a basically a coral feeding program, a feeder program that runs from three years old and up on Mondays, including a chorus, uh, an adult chorus, 13 to, uh, to you know, 60-something in the evenings on Monday. We also have a skits workshop, which is super fun. And we had a big concert this past Monday, sort of a sampler concert of everything that we do. So that's been a very uh, engaging thing for these past few weeks, getting ready for that. And uh, today I felt like I had a little time to breathe and put a few episodes down on the record. In fact, I hope to get as many as three done today. We'll see how that goes. Uh, so uh, I think I will just jump right in. What I'm doing today is reading from a blog post I wrote on my own blog at jackpelham.com. And this has been, um, oh, I don't know when I wrote this. Uh, it's been a couple of years, I would imagine. So uh, anyway, it is quite relevant to what we've been talking about here. So I thought that today I'd get into this and uh, and go through it, uh, mostly reading, but occasionally talking about it if I think of things I forgot to say. And this is a two-part blog post, uh, so I'll split it into two parts also for the uh, podcast here. So the title again is, There is No Special Bible for Lazy People. And that's meant to be funny, of course, but it is also true. So let me just jump right in. Jesus was talking to some from a religious faction, that is, from the Sadducees, and he told them a most instructive thing one day. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And so, uh, oh, here I am off, off the uh, beaten path already. <laughs> Again, I cannot be trusted just to read. I have to talk about what I read, even though I'm about to talk more about it in what I wrote before. Uh, I, what I got distracted about here is where he says, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I suspect that uh, this second part, this nor the power of God, I suspect that is a reference to himself. Uh, if you know much about uh, Old Testament uh, and the Hebrew idea, the two powers of Yahweh, I believe this might be a reference to that, where he is actually saying, look, you guys don't know who I am, and you don't know the scriptures either. And so uh, I won't get any farther down that trail. I'm not uh, two, two lines into the podcast, and I've already uh, already been uh, outside the box, so to speak. So uh, going on, I wrote, they were wrong about something because they did not know the scriptures. They could have had the right answer, but apparently they had chosen not to go find in the scriptures. Immediately after telling them they were wrong, Jesus explains the right answer to them, alluding to previous writings. Their ignorance did not keep them from having an answer, mind you. Indeed, they had an answer, but it was wrong, said Jesus. And that wrong answer was worthy of correction. 
This we can tell because Jesus took the time to correct it. So let's review. They did not have to be wrong, but they had neglected to learn all the available information on the topic before settling on a flawed model of understanding, and this was worthy of correction in Jesus' mind. Now, does this have any implications for us? Well, we'll come back to that. For now, though, we'll look at another example. In his epistle to the Roman Christians, Paul seems to be correcting some misconceptions held by his audience. In his explanation of what they're missing, he appeals thus, Romans 11, 2, uh, part B, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Now, we have every reason to believe that the Roman Christians were good guys, not like those mean old Sadducees, yet still Paul was explaining to them something they could have already learned for themselves had they cared to do the research. And let me give you another passage to consider. Jesus was criticized by the Pharisees for something they didn't know enough about. And let's look at his response. This is from Matthew 12, verse 3. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and how he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful, or which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? This one's even more interesting because, if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know that they had read these passages. It was one of the fundamental paradigms of their group to know all about the scriptures. Indeed, they were very proud about this, so they definitely knew the passages Jesus was referring to. Obviously, though, they had never fully processed what they had read, perhaps because they did not like what it said. So once again, they could have known better, but had neither neglected or had either neglected to do the math or to make themselves believe the answers. So here they were leveling an erroneous criticism. There are many passages of this sort in the Bible. They don't all use the phrase, have you not read? so it's not super convenient to find them, but it's well worth your time to search through and make a list of such things. Anyway, in religion, there are lots of players, lots of people who want to be involved. Yet it seems quite easy to make cognitive errors about the facts of religion. Now, why is that? Why isn't it easier? Why didn't God create a way for us all to have a fuller and more convenient knowledge of the facts? Well, it gets worse. When Jesus came to earth as the Son of Man, he spoke to people in parables. A parable is a story that teaches us about something other than the story itself. For instance, the parable of the mustard seed wasn't really about mustard seeds at all, but about reliance upon God and what a good return on investment can be expected from it. Well, this muddies the waters considerably for the casualist, because with parables, it becomes practically impossible for the cognitive miser to understand Jesus. Now, cognitive miser is the term that cognitive scientists use to describe our stinginess with our thinking. And I uh, took the time to import here a graphic that I have from uh, one of my other projects about reality-based thinking. And I'm just going to read this to you. It's um, a list of RBT, reality-based thinking foundations, the sort of the fundamental uh, facts and, and ideas about it. And this is a, a listing on the cognitive miser. It says the term was coined to describe the tendency of the human mind to avoid expending effort on thinking, just like a miser avoids spending money. It is a description of a general tendency, but it by no means describes every person's behavior in every situation. Indeed, some humans expend considerable mental effort even if others do not. And more importantly, a person may be a cognitive miser on one subject or in one situation, even if he or she is not in another. In RBT, considerable effort is drawn, drawn uh, to the voluntary nature of algorithmic and reflective thinking, so the one failing to engage is seen as being either disinterested or negligent in doing the work required for good thinking. Consider also the term moral miser. And of course, that one, that's people not 
spending enough energy on issues of morality uh, as opposed to uh, just the sort of straight-up thinking uh, issues. So anyway, there's that definition. I wanted to pause and read that. And uh, you know what I'd been saying right before is that this whole idea of Jesus speaking in parables muddies the waters considerably for the casualist. That is the person who sort of takes a casual approach to listening and understanding Jesus. Uh, because with the parables, it becomes practically impossible for the cognitive miser to understand Jesus. And that is, of course, by his own limitations. He's just not going to do the work. So question, did Jesus know this? <laughs> did Jesus know that humans tend to be cognitive misers? Did he know that the more complicated his statements, the fewer people would understand them? Did he know that if he told parables, lots of people would lack the mental energy to mine out from those parables the meanings he had in mind? Well, you bet he did. Yet he told parables anyway. And we really need to think about that. What does that say about this man? So back to the uh, text here. Uh, consider this one. Matthew thirteen thirty four. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Uh, quote, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. End quote. Interestingly, though he was uttering what had been hidden, uh, or even though he was uttering what had been hidden, uh, but was still not spelling it out in the most direct and clear terms. We're told elsewhere, however, however, that he told his own disciples everything in plain language, unlike how he spoke to the crowds. Consider this in Mark four thirty four. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Is it just a coincidence that his own disciples had signed up for the full course and not just the passerby version? I think not. That is, I think it's not just a coincidence. Their intense interest was reminded or was rewarded by a much fuller understanding. They were much less likely to get things wrong than were the casual listeners in the crowds. And let me just stop right here and make a note because uh, this um, popped up in my mind as I read that last passage. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Uh, here's a question for you, and this is uh, an unrelated bonus point, I suppose. Can you be Jesus' disciple if you're not there in person to have him, things ex uh, have him explain things to you privately? This is a question, of course, a lot of churches uh, trying to deal with Bible language, and, uh, oh, there's a lot of disciple talk in there. Well, what does that mean? Does that just mean, like, regular Christian? As, you know, I've been to churches who will say, oh, yeah, all Christians are supposed to be disciples. There's no other kind. Uh, well, okay, and, and, and I'm willing to give a little latitude to the terms, but here it says privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So can you be one of those disciples if you're not in private quarters with Jesus to explain things and where you can ask questions and get answers, uh, direct answers in real time. Uh, so I, th I do think uh, there is good reason to make some manner of distinction between his disciples that he taught privately and everybody else uh, today who is a believer and tries to follow his teachings to some extent. So that's a bonus point. Uh, sort of run off on that trail, but hey, <laughs> it's my podcast. I can do it if I want to, I suppose. And oh, and you've just turned me off and no longer will listen. Okay. All right. So going on, uh, I had said that uh, their intense interest was rewarded by a much fuller understanding. They were much less likely to get things wrong than were the casual listeners in the crowds. You and I, however, are not among those whose honor it was to sit at Jesus' feet. He is not here to explain everything to us and to answer our questions. If we want to know, we're going to have to find out from what is in the Bible. And if it's not in there, we're going to have to do without, 
or we're going to have to engage in some speculation, which may or may not be as accurate and as reasonable as we might like to think it is. And I'm going to stop here and say one more thing. Uh, A lot of Christians I have met over the years uh, are something of watchdogs when it comes to speculation. Oh, bro, be careful. That's speculation. Uh, Well, (laughs) God should have known that what went in the Bible didn't answer all the questions and that some things we do have to think about and wonder about. Which would he rather that uh, you do no thinking about something, no wondering, no trying to work the puzzle, or that you are trying to understand it and working around various options in your head. Yes, speculation's risky. So is reading. <laughs> you know, so is interpreting the text. You can read the words off the page, but you have to interpret what you read, and you are not a perfect uh, cognitive being. So even that is risky. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because I think uh, people get a little too wrapped around the axle about speculation as if it is not a useful uh, cognitive exercise when reading the Bible. So going on, I come to the heading, Understanding the Nature of the Material. We may have lots of questions, but the inconvenient truth of the matter is that a great many of our questions are not answered conveniently in the Bible. Sure, some things are easy to pick up, such as, for example, where Jesus says that we should not make a show of our good deeds. That one's pretty simple. Other things, though, require much research if we are to understand them accurately. For example, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, we cannot possibly comprehend how loaded that statement is unless we have searched out all the Son of Man language in the Bible in order to understand how it was used and what it meant. Or when he speaks of, quote, this perverse generation, end quote, or this wicked generation in some other uh, translations. How are we to know that he had in mind, uh, what he had in mind, unless we have searched all the scriptures to find out what it might have been? But who has time for that, someone may wonder. Well, I'm glad you asked. A devout student has the time for that. Others do not. The Bible itself divides people into two groups those who will work to understand, and those who don't care that much. Not saying you don't care, I'm saying you don't care that much. There is no Bible for cognitive misers. There is no Bible for lazy people. There is no Bible for dummies, as we might expect to find in the bookstore. And yes, there is a book called The Bible for Dummies, but it can't begin to explain all these things. There is no Bible that magically imparts the full information of the Scriptures in convenient form. It was not written that way. It was written in a rich mixture of history and metaphor and parable and poem and narrative and vision. It's almost as if the idea were to keep the cognitive miser in the dark. It's as if God intentionally makes it hard for the casual reader to get things right. And that brings us to the epidemic of error regarding the scriptures. When we have thousands of opposing camps, each one claiming to have a better take on things than the rest, so logically speaking, I, I have found an incomplete sentence <laughs> in my in my blog post. Uh, so sorry for this. Anyway, I'll just plow forward as if there were nothing here. Move along, folks. Uh, so logically speaking, we can rest assured that most of us are wrong about a great many things. And wrong we are. Yet we may never know it this side of that dreaded appointment with God. For so many of us tell ourselves again and again that we have got it more or less figured out and that if we were wrong about any of it, Surely we'd know that we're wrong. This is what the church corporations tend to do. They whittle it down for us into a convenient packet of information, and then they assure us that we don't need bother ourselves to learn much beyond what they repeat again and again for us. This catering to convenience and to belonging has led us to a great many misunderstandings of Scripture. 
their constant assurance that our continued attendance is more or less all we need to work at is a surefire way to keep the cognitive miser a cognitive miser, satiated, incurious, self-assured, complacent, and just flat out wrong about a great many things. People of that sort, however, do not have a special Bible of their own. They have the same one that everyone else has, all 100 or all 1100 pages of it. Funny, so many of us who believe claim that the Bible is a treasure from God, and yet a great many people dispense with the lion's share of the texts, counting them unworthy of their apt attention. And what is the consequence of this? The consequence is that they are wrong about a great many things, and further, that they are wrong about being wrong. What I mean is that Jesus, as we have seen, believed that errors were to be corrected, but the average modern Christian has managed to live with his or her errors, not lifting a finger to correct a thing, nor having many friends, if any at all, who will dare to make those corrections for them. Indeed, the average Christian may do so little reading as to rarely come across any signal that his erroneous understanding of this or that is, in fact, erroneous. If we have no interest in learning the whole of the Bible, we demonstrate what terrible disciples we would be. Many of us remember that one-liner from Jeremiah 29.30, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Many, however, seem to hope that God is not really the sort to mean such things. They hope that God will count their spirit of convenience as a spirit of diligence and their ignorance as knowledge. They hope he will count their wrong answers as right ones while they them, without uh, they themselves having to lift a finger to learn or to correct anything. And why not hope for such things? Without regular time in the texts to warn them against such ideas, why not believe it? Why not imagine God to be exactly what would be the most convenient for the cognitive miser? Well, if you know the scriptures, you know why not. And once again, we see how the scriptures tend to make the differences between people fairly obvious. If those of us who diligently study still have many things to learn and yet correct, those who don't study are hopeless in the Bible sense of that word. Thus do they invent the hope that God is not as he says, and they build entire church organizations around that hope. Well, I have blazed through this part one with amazing speed. I'm going to go back and edit the opening to this where I promised that I would do uh, this in two parts. So I'm going to do both together. So I'm going on now. And this is part two. In my previous post, I talked about how, number one, we have to actually read the Bible to know what's in it. Number two, Jesus seems to have thought that people's understandings were worth correcting, so we are to be in the habit of correcting ourselves by our further study. Number three, we have to deliberately process what we read in order to get it right. And number four, we have to cross-check what we read in order to understand when one passage alludes to information found elsewhere, such as with the parables or apocalyptic literature. All this was concerning how it's hard work to know the Bible, much harder than many assume. But it gets worse. Here are yet a few more difficulties the devoted Bible student faces. Uh, original languages. Our English Bibles are not in the original language. <laughs> Hopefully you know this already. No matter how good a translation we have, it is inevitable that some information will be lost or distorted in a translation. That is, there's no way that we will glean as accurate an understanding of a passage's original intent as would a reader fluent in the original language who is reading the text in the original language. We must understand that when translators do their thing, they are limited by the limitations of the language into which they are translating. Here's a great example, and we've talked about this before. I think we did a whole podcast uh, episode on this. A Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Our English word meek uh, connotes a person who is weak of will and easily overrun by others. Uh, thus, it is not an accurate translation of the Greek word praus in this passage. William Barclay, in his commentary on Matthew 5.5, 5, says of praus, quote, It is the regular word for an animal which has been domesticated, which has been trained to obey the word of command, which has learned to answer to the reins. It is the word for an animal which has learned to accept control. In other words, what is being indicated, and this is me now, uh, and not Barclay. In other words, what is being indicated by the word prowse is a person of great strength, one who can keep himself on the straight and narrow, resisting the temptation to turn to the left or to the right. This is hardly what we get from the English word meek. What does this mean for us? It means that we don't know, as we read along in English, whether we're getting the full sense of the original intent or not. So how can we know? Well, we have to look into the original language. This takes our Bible study effort to a whole new order of magnitude as it forces us to leave the mere task of reading, such as we might read a novel, and consult other reference works. But wait, it gets harder still. The Bible is not complete. Now this one's really going to rattle a lot of folks, but so be it. We must follow the truth wherever it may lead. Many believers have no idea that the Bible is not a complete record of all the things mentioned therein. They reason they do not uh, the reason they do not know this is very simple. They do not investigate matters deeply enough to discover that many of the questions that arise through the curious reading of the texts are not answered in the texts. For example, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Paul writes to the Corinthians as if they understand what he means by the third heaven. Indeed, in this very letter, Paul has already told us something about his way of thinking about the letter he's writing. In 2 Corinthians 1, 13, uh, back near the beginning, he says, for we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand. So if in 12.2, Paul is holding to this idea of writing only what they can read and understand, then we can assume that Paul thought they would understand his meaning of the third heaven. Otherwise, would he not have stopped to explain it so they could, quote, fully understand, end quote, as he had hoped they would. So what's the problem? Our problem is that we don't understand the third heaven. While there are many mentions of heaven and the heavens in the Bible, there is no passage that mentions any other ordinal number, that is, first, second, third, those sorts of numbers, uh, regarding any heaven. No passage tells us how many there are or were in total, no passage explains the need for more than one. No passage explains whether the three exist at one time or whether the first was made obsolete by the second and the second by the third and so forth. In short, we are simply not told by means of any direct language. Now, that's not to say something couldn't be figured out with regard to all this. And that sort of goes back to my uh, brief mention of, of speculation and uh, how that can be useful, even if it has its risks. Uh, but back to my statement, uh, that's not to say that uh, something couldn't be figured out without re with regard to all this, but you'll not find an explicit statement in this regard anywhere in the Bible. And if you go to the extra-biblical ancient Near Eastern writings, you'll find various accounts that do not use the same number of heavens. And some of them, for, for instance, You'll see the highest heaven uh, that's mentioned, uh, for example, in the apocryphal book of Ecclesiasticus, though it doesn't say how many there are in total. So you have the highest, but, you know, okay, well, highest of how many? Well, we're not told. Or, or you'll find five heavens mentioned in three Baruch, and you'll see ten heavens in the secrets of Enoch. Well, 
That raises lots of questions, doesn't it? Well, indeed it does. If you want to look into that, you have to go read all this, find out what are these documents, what is said about them. Is what is said about them true? Uh, in some cases, you'll find that what scholars say is probably not very smart. Uh, in other cases, it probably is. So this puts you in a whole new realm of investigation that you're probably not in already if you're a typical American Christian because the church cultures is just not about that. So back to my article. There are many such challenging topics raised by Scripture but not detailed in Scripture. The devout student knows this. The novice is surprised by it. But wait, it gets even harder still. And then I have the heading, Allusions to or Quotations from Extra-Biblical Works. What do we do when the Bible quotes or alludes to other writings that are not in the Bible? Here's a good example, Jude 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. The prophecy quoted here is not found elsewhere in the Bible, but in the book of Enoch, which is also called One Enoch or First Enoch. This passage constitutes the whole of chapter 2 of that book. Not only does Jude quote it as fact, but he specifically calls it a prophecy. And that really bakes the noodles of those who have been taught that the Bible is a tidy little package, all wrapped up and complete. It opens quite an uncomfortable door for the cognitive miser, who must now choose whether to process this information or simply to ignore it. And what do you think that most choose? Ignoring it is easier by far, provided that one does not keep regular company with devout students of the texts. Who would be bringing it up? Uh, again and again, is my point. So going on, if it increases the Bible student's work to have to consult reference works in addition to the Bible itself, exploring the extra-biblical works increases the work all the more. And I hope my point is clear here. If you really want to know about one Enoch, well, you have to go read the whole thing and not just one passage here and there. And then when you read the whole thing, you're going to have other questions. Well, this part doesn't make sense to me. And, and so are you then going to assume, ah, oh, well, the book of Enoch must be just garbage. Or are you going to go learn what it might have meant to the author? In which case, uh, perhaps you will come out of it like me and saying, oh, there's something here. This is part of the ancient Near Eastern puzzle. We need to understand this. If we're going to understand, and this is like uh, Dr. Michael Heiser says, uh, if you want to understand the Bible, you're going to have to understand the culture that produced it. And I think that's a fantastic point. I don't agree with everything that Heiser uh, says, but I totally agree with that. And uh, so you see what a big can of worms it opens. So going on, uh, I just said that it gets even worse once you have to go explore the extra-biblical works. It's harder on the student this way. But that's not all, folks dealing with all the false ideas. The devoted student of the Bible has to swim through a veritable sea of confusion as to what the Bible is, where it came from, what was its purpose, how it works, what time it is now, and what we should make of it in our own lives. He or she will quickly discover that a great many beliefs about the Bible are held very strongly by people even with very little supporting evidence, and sometimes even against the evidence. Here are some examples of commonly held beliefs that are hard to support from the Bible, and there are 10 in this following list, so uh, get ready for 10. Number one, uh, and the first thing will be like in quotations, and then I'll talk about it. So uh, number one, God determined exactly what would be in the Bible. And then my comment about that uh, commonly held belief is no passage of Scripture says this. Number two, the Bible is complete. No passage of Scripture says that. Number three, the Bible will replace the original New Testament apostles and prophets. 
No passage of Scripture says this either. And uh, let me be very clear what I'm talking about. If you talk to people about the passage, it says that, um, that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. They will say, see, uh, that's what the Bible is, uh, that we've been given everything we need, and uh, the Bible is the teachings of those apostles and prophets. So, see, they haven't left. They're still here in their writings, and everything is basically as it was. So, uh, again, to quote this number three, the Bible replaced the original New Testament apostles and prophets. And again, my answer, no passage of Scripture says this. And we could talk about that one on a separate episode. Uh, I'll just give you one example. Uh, Paul taught in the school of Tyrannus for three years. What did he say? Do you have three years worth of records from Paul? If you said, go, Paul, start talking, and then you waited three years later, and you had written down everything he said, would not that exceed the amount, the volume of what he, uh, what appears in his epistles in the Bible? Well, indeed it would. You don't think you'd get any detail that's not in the Scriptures? Of course you would. So this idea that the Bible replaced the original New Testament apostles and prophets, uh, changing out uh, live-inspired people with uh, just a, uh, a limited number of their writings, uh, no passage of Scripture teaches that. Plus, it's a bit of an absurd idea. Uh, number four. The blank version, uh, insert any Bible version that you want, any translation you want. The blank version was translated infallibly with the help of God himself. Well, no passage of Scripture says this, and it doesn't take much investigation to confirm that it's a false idea. Number five, every word in the Bible was written by direct inspiration as if God himself were holding the pen. Not only does no passage say this, but it's very clear in the original languages that the style of writing changes from one document uh, or from document to document in the Bible, indicating it is not the work of a single author. Uh, and God, of course, would be a single author if we're going with this idea, well, you know, God's the one who decided exactly uh, what it says, rather than the idea that God worked through people that he had prepared to uh, be... Uh, adequate Bible writers. So, and number six, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Well, this simply is not true. For example, compare the order of events in the various accounts of the Last Supper and see that the accounts do not all agree. That is Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11. Dishonest students will lie about this and pretend that there are no contradictions or alternatively, that they don't matter. The fact of the matter, however, is that it tells us something very important about the nature of the Bible when we stop and observe the obvious. And I did not plan to get into this today, but each writer is writing with different points he wants to make about the things that happened. And so uh, he may prioritize the events that happened. As far as we know, he himself may not have been an expert on the timeline of the Last Supper. Nowhere does it say, now, everything we tell you is exactly true in every respect, and our writing is designed for that very purpose. Uh, if that were true, the writings would have to be a lot longer than they were, of course. So this opens up a whole can of worms as to, well, what is the Bible supposed to be? What kind of writing is this supposed to be? And we moderns may look at it expecting a... Uh, a detailed court case kind of account of exactly what happened first and then what happened second and all this. Uh, but what if the writers simply did not have those paradigms in mind? What if that, those were not their goals in writing? Well, can we blame them then for not writing a historical timeline account like we would like to see? Hmm, maybe we can't. Maybe we ought not to. Or maybe we're arrogant when we do. Well, this isn't right. <laughs> it says over here. Well, okay, why don't we deal with that maturely? 
But again, uh, this number six is pointing to how people will be dishonest about this or sweep it under the rug. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to admit it when a non-believer challenges in this way. Uh, so they lie about it or pretend it isn't important, which does more damage than facing it straightforwardly. But then if you're a cognitive miser, you don't want to take the time to face it straightforwardly. And so you end up doing harm to the reputation of Christianity by the example you set for others. Number seven, the Bible is life's instruction manual. No, it is not. There's nothing in it about a great many of the things we need to know in life. There's just not. I suppose my silence is letting point sink in. I'm just thinking uh, there's just not enough evidence. And the Bible, of course, doesn't say that it's life's instruction manual. This is the way that cognitive misers like to characterize it because it's easier for them rather than to say, well, actually, the Bible is kind of sophisticated and complicated, and it's the work of many, many authors and so forth, um, which points we'll be making elsewhere in the study if we haven't already. Uh, number eight, the Bible is a blueprint for the church. Well, if that's what it is, it is grossly incomplete. There are a great many questions that arise rather routinely in the practice of church that are not answered in the Bible. I'll stop right here and just mention one, and this is a, a favorite example of mine uh, because of it's an example of this very thing. What about your teen ministry? Uh, could you have gone to Paul and said, hey, we're thinking about getting all the teens together every week for a couple hours and sort of do a thing on their own and teach them you know, separately and all this. Well, what would Paul have said about that? Would he have said, man, that's a fantastic idea. In fact, I'd do that myself. When I go into towns and stay for a while, I uh, get all the teens together and talk to them sometimes. Um, well, we don't know. Or what he have said, are you nuts? The body is a unit. It's a whole. It's made up of many parts. They're all supposed to be together. There's not supposed to be any divisions in the body. You see where I'm getting this? This is Paul language. Otherwise, would he have applied that to the idea of a teen ministry? Well, we don't know. Yet the question naturally arises over time, and it is not answered in the Bible. Another example would be this. Uh, some churches, like uh, the Churches of Christ, for example, they say, well, hey, um, the way we look at it the Bible is a blueprint for the church, and hey, since there is no mention of musical instruments being used in the worship of the New Testament ecclesia, that's the word that gets translated to church, then we think they ought not be there. Well, okay, uh, that's a speculative answer because you don't have a statement that says they ought not be there. So you're doing some thinking, reasoning, and you're coming up with this answer. But here's a question. The uh, culture, the religious culture, the heritage of the Jews, did it not involve instrumental music in the temple worship? Well, yes, it did. The harp and the timbrel and all manner of things like this, uh, singers and such. In fact, like you know, typical Church of Christ way of looking at it, well, there's no choir, a church choir mentioned in the New Testament, so we're not going to have that either. Well, okay. Uh, there's also no church building mentioned in there, and yet you have those, and there's no hymnals, and there's no microphones, you know, and several other things like that. There's no 501c3 corporation, and maybe many other things that might get used. So it, it gets a little messy when you're doing this. How consistent are you going to be with this kind of rationale? Uh, however, if the Bible is a blueprint for the church, how come it doesn't mention these things? That's my question. I think you find a lot of issues that come up that need to be dealt with, hopefully responsibly and rationally and honestly. Um, and you just aren't going to find the answers directly in the Bible. Now, you might find principles in the Bible, like the principle of honesty. Well, okay, let's be honest in how we think. Well, okay. Or the principle of reasonableness. You know, come let us reason together. Okay, well, let's be reasonable in the positions we take. Sure. But is the Bible a blueprint for the church? Well, if so, then there are pages missing. Because not all the details of how things should work are included in the text that we have. Number nine, the Bible was written to us. No, it wasn't. 
there was not one passage in the Bible that is explicitly addressed to any audience later than the first century A.D. This is quite obvious, but many lie about it, preferring to pretend otherwise. And, you know, one of the popular things now among uh, some camps of Bible scholars is to say, well, the Bible is not written to us, but it was written for us. Uh, Okay. Well, even that, I think, is kind of messy because a lot of the texts you can see are directly addressed to, you know, the Christians at Rome or things like this. Uh, or to people in the first century, or to people who spoke other languages than us. Indeed, they're not written in English, are they? Uh, they were, they existed long before we ever came around. I don't believe they're written for us either. Hey, I'm going to write a letter to you Romans, but just keep in mind, this is for Americans in uh, New Jersey in the year 2021. Uh, that's just kind of ridiculous. I would say that the Bible uh, may very well have been preserved for us, that God may have had it delivered to our generation. I think that's quite reasonable. Is that speculative? Well, you bet. Uh, is it speculative to say it was written to us? Oh, that, yeah, that's even worse because you can't find one single example of that in there. Uh, to say it's written for us, mm, that may be a little less objectionable. And yet still that's speculative. And so Jack comes along and suggests, well, I think we should say that it may have been delivered to us, you know, for our edification, for our uh, education and such. So uh, that is even less presumptuous. And it could be, of course, as far as I know, that uh, God didn't do a thing about it. That people decided, hey, wow, this is valuable. We need to uh, preserve this. We need to translate this. We need to be sure it gets passed down to the generations. That could be. Did God intervene? I have no idea. Uh, Of course, the Bible doesn't tell me what happened in the centuries and millennia that followed the Bible story. So so there's a case where people do speculate, uh, even in those camps that will warn me about speculation. Uh, Number 10, all Bible studies should end with life application. This is a really bad idea for the cognitive miser, if he cares at all about such things, will likely find himself in a rush to figure out what to do about every passage he reads. And why in a rush? That's because, because cognitive misers are quite unhappy in thinking mode and are always in a hurry to get out of it. But this rush to application distracts him from what should be the primary goal of study, that is, to determine what was believed, what happened, what it meant to the writer. To divorce ourselves from the meaning of the texts in a rush to do something is to divorce ourselves from our chances of figuring out accurately what should be done. Those who study the whole Bible generally have considered different ideas how to conduct themselves than do those who read only parts of it. I think I butchered that sentence. I'm going to try that again. Those who study the whole Bible generally have considerably different ideas how to conduct themselves than do those who read only parts of it. You know, it is. what does it say, the proverb, it is not good to be hasty and miss the way. I think that's talking about exactly this kind of thing. Well, if you don't understand why Jesus taught this or why Paul taught that or why Solomon wrote this, How in the world are you going to know how to go rightly apply it, if at all it's a thing for you to apply in the first place? For example, when Jesus tells the apostles, hey, you go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you in power. What is our application of that? If we're in this application mode, oh, I'm going to be a good disciple. I'm going to apply the scriptures. Okay. When you first read that, did you buy a plane ticket and go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you in power? If not, then what did you do? How did you apply it? Or what about where he tells them, uh, go over there and you'll find a donkey tied uh, up and go get the donkey and tell the owner I said, you know, such and such. Okay, what's your application of that? Do you go around stealing donkeys? 
and telling people that the Lord needs it? Is this what you do? Uh, Clearly, you recognize that some things don't have application. If you read about Jesus having been born in Bethlehem, what is your application of that? So it's a silly paradigm, and it's often put forth by preachers who want to get their uh, congregations to do stuff. And so they find some passage that they can uh, craft some sort of application out of. And they say, see, folks, and the application of this passage is yada, yada, yada. And that's what we need to do here now. And everybody says, amen, bro, preach it. And then that's how that works. But how many people actually understand what the author meant by the passage and what the language he meant used, or what the language he used meant? Uh, Very few do. So I go on after those 10 examples. The devout student of the texts will have to swim against the tide of popular opinion. This includes not only such items as those in the brief list above, but also the accusations of cognitive misers who are made uncomfortable at the idea that they too probably need to invest more time in their own study. From this are born accusations such as, you think too much, which are commonly launched against the devout student in an attempt to get him to shut up about his findings. The fact of the matter, of course, is that we have over 1,100 pages of Bible about which to think. And the typical cognitive miser uh, believer generally concerns himself only with a few one-liners from Scripture, often only from those printed in the New Testament and often only those printed in red letters, if he happens to know what a red-letter edition is. From these... They simply guess at the meanings with no intent whatsoever to confirm or deny those guesses from the rest of the 1,100 pages. Conclusion There is no Bible that eases the load of the cognitive miser. Or as my title has it, there is no special Bible for lazy people. There's no way around it. Assuming that the Bible contains things that pertain to God, and for the record, that's what I believe, then the person who is really interested in God is going to be interested in everything that's in it. I think that one's level of curiosity about understanding the texts may well be a good indicator of one's interest in God himself. I am reminded of the account of the rich young ruler who simply didn't consider a radical investment in Jesus to be worth the cost. Mark 10, verse 17. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Is this really any different from someone who would like like to have a family, but not a full-time family? Is it any different from one who would like to be who would like to have an occasional lover, but not a spouse? Is it any different from one who would like lots of money, but not lots of work? The fact of the matter is that a full and accurate understanding of the scriptures is a very costly thing. Much ado is made in the churches about knowing God. From this, we may infer that knowing God is considered a very important thing. Yet, if we study the habits of those making such proclamations, we generally see that very few of them are interested in knowing everything that can be learned from the very texts that they hold to be God-breathed. And one has to wonder at what point having only a partial understanding of what God is like is about the same as having a false understanding of what God is like. And then I have a final note. For more on these ideas, see my related post, Whittling Christianity Down to a Twisted Lie. And that post I will uh, read to you also in the next uh, episode of this uh, podcast. So let me just sum up a bit with what I think is going on here. And this, this will set all this back in the context of the overall content of this podcast. We started out with that we are created. We're created in God's image. He cares about how we think. Uh, How we think was part of his design. Uh, Obviously, we have latitude in how we think. This is why he says so often, hey, 
don't say this to yourself, but say that, or come let us reason together, or don't, uh, don't answer without listening first, or uh, don't assume the first to present his case is right because another comes along and questions him and uh, makes better sense out of things. And so this is all through the Bible, coaching about how to think well, and God cares about that. Uh, God himself thinks impeccably. And he wants people to be like him in that regard. Uh, are we? Uh, not very good at it. We can uh, certainly get better and better. Uh, there can be an amazing difference between a base human who does not care about the quality of his self and one who has followed Jesus for some time and has learned of the teachings. Uh, so these things are important. And yet in so many churches, they're not very important at all. They may get some lip service. But what are so many of the churches trying to do? Oh, get more members. Okay, to what end? To make them mature followers of Jesus? No, to have more members. We want to get more, so we'll have more. Well, why? Well, so we can get more after that? Okay, for what purpose? Mm, to have more, <laughs> you see, it just becomes sort of a greedy thing, like Sheol itself was greedy to swallow up uh, people. So what's the point of all that if we're not going to have the authentic quality of mind that God and Jesus uh, exemplify in the scriptures and that they had designed for us? What's the point? There is not a Bible for lazy people. They get the same one everyone else gets, and it provides quite a test for them. And uh, it can be seen by those who understand what they're seeing, like God and the angels, for, for example. It can be seen how we humans bumble things about, how we make um, hasty conclusions about the things we read, how sometimes we draw uh, inaccurate uh, parallels, and, you know, for example, we've already talked about the Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Uh, uh, conversation in John and about how people say, oh, three times. Well, that's how many he denied Jesus. Uh, therefore, this must be directly an answer to that. Well, no, there's more to it than that. But the cognitive miser will be satisfied with the quick and simple explanation and will not understand the rest. So we've had many examples of that. I think this is a very serious problem. I think that the Jesus that so many people think is the one of the Bible is not very much like the one in the Bible in many regards. Uh, am I saying they get everything wrong? Oh, no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they get enough wrong to be worth uh, paying attention to. Uh, because, you know, if you get something wrong about God, is this going to have any consequences? For example, if you thought that God himself is um, petty and he's just a, an angry old man who's griping about things, well, then how are you going to feel about uh, his view of what is righteous and what is sinful? So if you were wrong about him in those ways, would it make a difference in your life? and in the way you apply your understanding of scriptures. You bet it would. And so this is what time I think it is here. I think that we have multiple congregations, uh, especially the, the franchise types, the ones who have congregations all over the place. You know, typically you're going to call that a denomination. And uh, many of them have just lost these fundamentals of the teachings of God and Jesus and have moved on to something else or some twisted version, some watered-down version, and so forth. And, of course, you'll hear people complaining about this very thing all the time, even in churches who themselves are doing this same sort of thing. Uh, well, this is no surprise. This is exactly like the cognitive scientists tell us about human nature. It's easier to see the bad thinking in the other guy than it is to see it when you do the same kind of bad thinking yourself. Um, this is a famously known fact about human existence and human experience, and Christians are no exception. We have the same 
temptation to deal with. We have the same limitations, the same stumbling blocks to deal with that everyone else does. And hypocrisy, as I'm not sure I've mentioned on this podcast, but in a recent post somewhere or other, the road to hypocrisy is a short one. It doesn't take many steps from being unhypocritical about a thing to become hypocritical about it. We are constantly in danger of that, unless we're perfect. But we are constantly in danger of not living up to the principles that we ourselves espouse and uh, recommend to others or even insist that others follow. This is one of the biggest cancers on all of humankind, hypocrisy, and we are so close to it. So I think I've said enough about this today. I hope this gives you a lot of good things to think about, to think through, and just to understand the nature of what time it is when we open the Bible. Uh, What are we doing when we open the Bible? What's going on here? Uh, These things are important to grasp, and I'm still trying to understand it better and better myself. This next episode will be whittling Christianity down to a twisted lie, and that will be, uh, it will follow quite nicely on the heels of this discussion. So that's it for now. Thanks for joining in.